children down for Children's Church, and then you may be seated. One of the things that we like to do around this place is we want to make sure that we um, our, our music matches the text that we're going to be preaching. So on Tuesday, Scott texted me and said, what's your text and your topic for this coming Sunday? I said, Joshua 2, the story of Rahab, good luck. But Scott, I think you did great. Wait, good selection of music there. Way to go. Would you join me again for a word of prayer? We praise you, Father, for the truths we have sung. You are great and mighty, and we need to build our lives upon you. And you are our vision. And when that happens, when you fill our vision, we find the love that pours forth from our hearts toward you makes it so much easier to live in obedience. And so, Father, as we open your word today to this text of Scripture, open our minds, open our hearts, and we surrender ourselves to the moving of your Spirit as you desire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them, please, to Joshua chapter 2. We come today to one of the most beautiful stories in the Old Testament, not because all of the people involved are beautiful people, but because a beautiful thing happens to sinful people. Most of, our, most of us are familiar with the details of the, story, of the story. And quite frankly, that can be a problem. Let me explain what I mean by that. One of the greatest obstacles to the knowledge of the Bible is knowledge of the Bible. One thing that keeps us from knowing more about Scripture is what we think we already know about Scripture. And this is often due to the fact that we're so familiar with stories that, um, that we think we know everything that can be known about them. So when we come to them in our regular Bible reading, we just kind of gloss over them. Okay, I know this story. I've, I've heard dozen sermons on them. And so um, I, I could just kind of breeze through it. But the problem with that is that the uncommon becomes common. And we dare not let that happen to us when we come to the Word of God. Here is one of the greatest messages of the Old Testament. God uses unlikely people to proclaim the message of the cross for sinners. I kind of like what the way D.L. Moody put it. He said this, it's not how many times you have gone through the Bible. Rather, it's how many times the Bible has gone through you. So let's let the Bible go through us again as we come now to Joshua chapter 2. And we learn some lessons from a very unlikely hero. And the first lesson that we're going to touch on is this one from verse 1. And that is that sinful people can participate in God's redemptive plan. Look at verse 1 with me. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. How tragic it is that we know this lady simply as Rahab the prostitute or Rahab the harlot. She was, you know, somebody's daughter. 
somebody's granddaughter, somebody's aunt. There was far more to her than the sinful choices of her life. I guess one thing that we need to draw from that is that to understand this very powerful principle that we need to be aware of in our lives, and that is that sin can label us. Think about that. Sin can label us. You may be the liar or the cheater or the unfaithful spouse or any number of those sins which if we allow them to occur in our lives often enough, they put a label on us. But there's an even greater lesson from this, and that is that God can redeem sinful people. Amen? What a tremendous lesson we are going to see from this story. We can turn to the New Testament. We get to Hebrews chapter 11, and we like to call that chapter, chapter the hall of faith. These are the giants of faith. These are the people who have lived their lives in such a way that God writes them down saying, remember this person, remember this person. And surprisingly, we go to that chapter, and whose name do we find in the hall of faith? Rahab. James uses her in his letter to point out that her works provided evidence of her faith. She was under the law in the Old Testament, under grace in the New Testament. I have this habit that annoys my wife to death. <laughs> yeah, only one. Thank you for that. I'll get a water bottle like this. I want you to notice this water bottle. What's, what's unique about this water bottle, Becky? It has a label on it. Because I get a water bottle like this, and I start playing with it, and what I love to do is I peel the label off. I get a bottle of, of something else. I'll, I'll get a package of something. And I just like to kind of sit there and fiddle with it and peel the labels off. And it drives my wife bonkers. Maybe my fascination with doing that comes from a truth I learned long ago. And it's this truth. Our God is a God who removes labels. Come on. Come on. All of us, listen carefully, all of us are ex-offenders of the law of God. All of us have come short of the glory of God. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Yet God has canceled out the penalty of our yesterdays and declared us innocent today so that we might live with Him in a tomorrow that will never end. That's the awesome thing about the God we serve is he can peel away all the labels of what we have identified ourselves as in this life. And he can give us a new life, brand new with him forever. Some of you remember the story of John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader, a captain of a ship that traveled to Africa to pick up slaves and deliver them to the United States. In that, in, in that uh, case, in my mind, it makes him one of the most despicable kind of people I have ever thought of in my life. Those people who did that have got to be among the worst people who've ever lived. And yet, God touched his heart with redemption so that now, from time to time, we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. 
And I love that second stanza that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious was that hour. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Men and women, putting your faith in Jesus Christ can make the biggest difference your life will ever experience. And that's what happened to John Newton. So let me ask, do you need some amazing grace today? Has your sin labeled you maybe even only in your own mind? And you live in fear of facing God to someday give an account for all of it? Today, grace can relieve your fears and become precious to you as well. Listen, folks, we all put the mess in Messiah. We all do that. He comes to save this mess. And when faith comes into a messed up life, that mess can somehow be translated by God to become a messenger. That's the transformation. They go, I like those little things. My sister's a cat lady. I once wrote to her, I said, you put the meow in homeowner. Write that word out. You can't write homeowner without the word meow in it. She appreciated that one. So sinful people can participate in God's redemptive plan. And we ought to say hallelujah, praise God, because that's all of us. My sin may be slightly different from yours, but my sin is just as horrific to an absolutely holy God. And God can come down when we put our faith in Him in what Jesus Christ did on that cross, and He peels the labels off. So be careful. Right? A second lesson we can learn is simply this. Obedience is sometimes scary. Look back at verse 1 with me. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go into the land, especially Jericho. Jericho is going to be the very first city that the nation of Israel will encounter as they cross the Jordan River. And I love how this, this whole verse, Joshua seems to assume it's just a given that he's going to cross the Jordan. And if we could have been there and seen it at the flood stages, which we'll see in, in chapter 3, that would not be a given in many people's mind that somehow we're going to cross this massive river. But it is for Joshua. And here is a formidable city with thick walls all the way around it. I wonder, remember, Joshua had been here before. He and Caleb had come and scouted out the land. I wonder if Joshua had, had ventured into the promised land way back 40 years earlier, and if he, he and Caleb had seen the city of Jericho and had been impressed with it. The other 10 spies sure, surely had seen similar things, and they came back with the report, no way we can take this land. To do this would be impossible. Shittim is the name of a village, very likely taken from the type of wood, also called Shittim, that can be found there. And from the village of Shittim, Joshua sends out two spies to get the lay of the land there in, Josh, in, in Jericho. 
And once they get into the city, they go to a brothel. And some people may ascribe some wrong purpose for that kind of a visit. I don't think it was that way. I think that these men seem to understand that back in that time, a brothel was the greatest place to get the news, all the unofficial news of what's happening in the city. It was where men congregated, unfortunately, sadly, sinfully. Let's not minimize that in any way. But these spies knew this is where they could go to find out what are people in the city talking about. But unfortunately, look look at verses 2 through 7, the spies are soon discovered. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel has come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. And I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them after, pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was su- shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Their cover's blown. They can no longer operate in an incognito fashion. The report gets to the king of Jericho, and he in turn sends out the JPD. That's Jericho Police Department, okay? Keep up with me here. He sends the Jericho Police Department to Rahab, and says, you need to bring out these men that you have taken in. In the meantime, Rahab has taken these men and put them up on the roof of the house and hid them among the flax there. In those days, the roofs of the house were flat. They didn't have these steep roofs like we have, which are designed that way to shed water and snow, and there isn't much of that that comes in the land of Israel. Okay, So the roofs were flat to collect any water that came, and the flat roofs were used for a lot of different places. People would escape there in the evening to try to get up where there's a little bit of breeze to cool themselves off. But this was a place where Rahab had stacks of flax up there. Flax is is a plant that is grown in that area, and she would stack it up on a roof back then so that the flax would dry out. And from flax, when it's dry out, you could process it and make a clothing call or fabric called linen. And so that's what she had done. She's simply trying to take care of business. She had stacked the flax up there, and so she had hidden the men among the flax and then had sent the JPD off on a fool's errand. This all brings us to a tremendous difficulty. Rahab lied. In fact, she lied several times. There is no way to cover it up. There is no way to explain it away. She blatantly, shamelessly lied. So it causes us to ask the question, well, Pastor Larry, didn't you see in Hebrews chapter, say in Hebrews chapter 11, she's listed as a woman of faith? So why is Rahab in the hall of faith? And I'm sure that there are other men who could probably express this better than I can. Let me just put it to you in the simplest terms that I am able to understand. Why is Rahab in the hall of faith? First of all, so I, but let, me, let me pause. Why is Rahab there? 
when Proverbs chapter 12 says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, why is Rahab there when Revelation 21 says, all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone? So here's my best way to explain this. First of all, because the Bible commends an individual for a righteous act does not mean that God condones everything that person did. David was described as a man after God's own heart. But what do we know about David? Well, he kind of had an adulterous affair with a, with a neighbor, and then he arranged for the neighbor's wife to be murdered. Neighbor's husband, thank you. Neighbor's husband to be murdered. So um, David, a man after God's own heart, just because the Bible commends an individual for a righteous act that they do doesn't mean God condones everything that person did. Many people listed in that hall of faith in Hebrews 11 were people who sinned or acted foolishly or cowardly. Every single soul that is saved is a former liar or murderer or coward or blasphemer or adulterer or thief or some other horrible sin. Secondly, I think we need to keep in mind that Rahab was a Canaanite harlot. The people of Canaan were a wicked, abominable people. They did horrible things. One of the worst things that I dug up in my study that they did was as an act of worship to their gods, they would take their little babies and offer them in the fire. I can't think of much worse things that somebody could possibly do. I can't, wonder, can't help but wonder, the husbands had to tear those babies from the arms of their mamas to do something like that. So the Canaanites were incredibly wicked people. So I think, secondly, Rahab's recorded words and actions in Joshua 2 reveal a woman in transition making her way from a pagan religion to the one true God. I think she's starting to figure some things out, and we'll be pointing this out in our text as well. I think she's beginning to understand that their gods that they have worshipped, and I wonder how many of her children got offered into the fire, but their gods are not going to protect them. They've heard of the stories of this one true God. They heard what this God did to Egypt. They heard about this God letting them cross the Red Sea. They heard about what this God had done to mighty kings that lived right next door. So she is in transition. Look at what she says to the spies in verses 8 through 13. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord... Notice in your Bible that the word Lord probably is in all caps. That's the Hebrew word that we understand as Jehovah. That's the name that was given to their God. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my sisters, my brothers, 
and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. These are the words of a Canaanite coming to know the real God. We don't excuse her, but it certainly explains why she was still trapped in some lies. <coughs> Excuse me. And finally, this is pretty simple. She was scared. You ever sinned when you were scared? Ever lied? Ever used curse words? Sure, we do those kinds of things. Rahab was afraid of the JPD and the prospects before a God who led his people out of Egypt and who led his people in the conquest of mighty kings. It doesn't excuse it, but again, it does explain it. She was simply scared, which is what I said. Sometimes obedience can just be a very scary thing to do. And that leads us to a third message for us today. What we learn from an unlikely hero. Lesson number three that we'll learn from verses 14 through 24 is that all who are redeemed are redeemed in spite of themselves. Look at verses 14 through 24. The men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall. That's going to be important later on. So that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. And if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed into the hills, remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. The two men returned. They came down from the hills, passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given us all the lands into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. I believe what we see here is something far more than I scratch you, your back, you scratch mine. I don't think it's that kind of a cooperative deal that is being made. These spies saw a woman who truly understood that Je Jehovah God is the one true God. She told them, fear of you has fallen upon us. The inhabitants of the land melt away before you. What a testimony to the sovereignty of God, amen? Man, these people, God, God told them, you're going to have to go and take Jericho, and the Israelites might have said, oh, what are you going to do? And God's already saying, man, they're like butter. They're going to melt away in, your, in the heat of you. What would have caused this Rahab, this prostitute, to come to that kind of belief. Where did she get this kind of faith? Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Rahab believed what she had heard, 
not just of Israel, but about the God of Israel. So the spies escaped through the, from the city through a window because the gates were locked and guarded. Perhaps this is the first example of when God closes a door, he opens a window. I'm not sure that's where this phrase comes from. But they were let down through a scarlet cord which was left in the window until the nation came back. That scarlet cord was kind of like a bookmark so they could find her home again. And that simply leads me to this question. Do you bookmark places in your lives where God does something great? Do you do something to write things down? My wife is after me to journal, and I know I should, and I don't do it nearly so often. She journals everything. She has won arguments with her journal. But I think there is a wonderful principle that we can draw forth from our text here. These spies were spared from absolute certain execution. When you have that kind of an experience in your life, it sticks in your mind. This was a story to tell the children and their grandchildren. Do you have something that you're marking down so that you have stories to tell your children and your grandchildren and pass them on? You should. I think we all should. We who have been the recipients of such incredible grace and mercy from an, from an omnipotent God, and when He acts on our behalf, and when He chooses to bless us in a particular way that spares us from something horrendous, we ought to mark it down. We ought to be able to have it there so we can someday tell our kids and tell our grandkids, listen, there was a time when I was facing this, and it was absolute certain destruction, and God moved in. Because then, perhaps, by faith, their hearts will melt before that God as well. That's what these spies did. Rahab the prostitute is listed as a woman of faith. But again, all who are redeemed are redeemed in spite of themselves. Amen? Our fourth and final lesson for this morning is simply this. God can use insignificant people to lead others to himself. Rahab turns out to be quite the evangelist as well. In the course of a week or so, she's knocked on the doors of all of her family members, told them of the impending disaster, urges them to seek safety. She no doubt brought them into her home, showed them the scarlet cord, told them about the spies and their promise to spare her actual home. Rahab is recognized in Hebrews chapter 11 as a believer. She's saved by faith because she believed in the God she heard about. And her works demonstrated the authenticity of her faith. The order here is so significant. We are saved by faith alone, and that is all that is necessary in order for us to be guaranteed a spot in heaven. But if God allows us to live on this earth after our salvation for some time, what he expects is just for us to participate in the good works which he has before ordained that we should walk in them. That's what Rahab is doing here. And in Joshua chapter 6, we're told that the Israelites marched around the city of Jericho. The walls fell flat, but not obviously the entire wall. This is a case of selected demolition. Kind of what your kids' room look like. Selective demolition. The whole wall fell except for this one little spot on the wall with a scarlet cord hanging out of a window. It's a mystery. It's grace. 
It's inexplicable. We are undeserving, but we dare not be unappreciative when God works in our lives. I find it interesting that Rahab is known as a prostitute or a harlot everywhere, except when, he's, when she's associated with Jesus. Go to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab married Salmon. These are the parents of Boaz. Boaz becomes the husband of Ruth. Boaz and Ruth are the parents of Obed, who's the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. And from David comes Jesus. Folks, when Jesus enters the picture, we are known for our association with Him, not for our past sins. In the words of Corey Ten Boom, when God forgives us, He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, then He puts a no fishing allowed sign on the shore. We don't often speak of prostitutes here at Open Bible Church. So perhaps today's message should be rated R for redeemed. That's what God does to sinful people like you and me. And then we have the opportunity to praise Him and live in obedience to Him. Let's pray.